Daniel chapter 11 uh, this evening. And pastor, I want to say as well that, I, you know, if you want to make your shoes look more like dress shoes, I know a artist in the family that might be able to paint them and make them look like dress shoes. And then and you could wear them all over the place and nobody would know any better. Either that or they would know. <laughs> yeah. Daniel chapter 11 is where we're at tonight. And we're going to start off here in verse, uh, in verse number two. And last week, um, you can throw up that first slide if you want uh, in the back. There you go. That's kind of where we're headed. Um, so we talked about Daniel chapter 10 last week, the delivery of the final vision. We talked about, um, or not last week, but the last time we met, um, and about how that this battle in the heavenlies exists. And a lot of things that happen in the heavenlies first gets fought over there and is kind of filtered down into the earthly realm. And we learned about that. We learned about how sometimes God, or sometimes there's some spiritual warfare in the heavenlies that pre- prevent uh, prayer requests from actually coming through. In the sake of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, he had offered a prayer to God to help understand, and it was the answer was prevented from getting to him. And so we talked about that in chapter 10, um, a little bit about spiritual warfare. But now in chapter 11, this is the, uh, the content of his message. Uh, this is the material that he, that, that he writes down. As he hears the information, he's writing it down. It's different this time because he doesn't see the images, but he's listening to the, uh, the, the message, and the angel is telling him this message, and he's writing it down. As, he's, as it's being repeated. And so I label this persecutors of God's people because in chapter 11, there, there's two specific individuals that we'll come into contact with, Antiochus and the Antichrist, two uh, persecutors of God's people uh, throughout uh, the book of Daniel, two noted ones here. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get through some of the text. But I want to start here in chapter 11, uh, verse number 2. Um, as we begin. So it says, uh, verse number two of chapter 11, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, Daniel's heat's hearing, the angel says, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be richer than them all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up the realm of Greece. Now in chapter 11, the third kingdom is going to be the major player, which is the kingdom of Greece. And I'll show you how that connects into the Antichrist, the, 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 the persecutor of God's people, the, the biggest persecutor of God's people. But here he just mentions a few things. And I just want to uh, go down just a little bit through these few things here, just so you understand. Because in chapter 11, you've got prophecies that are going to be fulfilled um, as far as Daniel's future is concerned and our, and our past we'll say, okay, if I can explain it that way, as well as the second half of chapter 11 and chapter 12 are prophecies that are still yet future for both us and for Daniel. And so you have to kind of remember the, uh, where we're at and what we're talking about in the book of Daniel. To him, these prophecies in chapter 11, verse 2 to 35 are yet future for him. For us, they're past because they've already happened. But both us and Daniel have prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future, chapter 11, verses 36 through chapter 12. But we're told that, uh, and you can throw up the next slide as well, we're told that three more kings 
after Cyrus, the king that we're talking about in the book of Daniel, arises. And it says, a fourth one shall be far richer than them all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up the realm of Greece. Well, the fourth Persian king, if we follow the line of succession, specifically mentioned due to his wealth, and that's King Xerxes, or Azuharis. It was known to be a very wealthy king, and that's the king in the book of Esther. Okay, So when you come to the book of Esther, you remember some of you ladies in a Bible study, I think, have just finished Esther, and you learned how he had this huge banquet and all this wealth for almost six months, he had this huge wedding feast. It's so we're, they're talking about Xerxes. That's what Daniel's talking about here. He was known to be a very wealthy king. It was also the king who wed Esther in the book of Esther. But besides his wealth, Xerxes was also known for his great military strength, his great military power. And he was going to launch this campaign against Greece because Greece was starting to become, and of course that's the third world power. You know, we've got Babylon, we've got Medo-Persia. And eventually the Medes fall off and it's just the Persians. And now we have Greece. So Greece is becoming a big threat. And so Xerxes decides he needs to go against uh, Greece and to kind of push them down. And he incites an attack against Alexander, who's referred to in the next verse. Now, Alexander the Great, we probably know him from history. Most of us do. Look at what verse 3 says. It says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great domination and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for the other besides these. So King Alexander, Alexander the Great, is the mighty king who's going to eventually go against the Persian Empire and conquer the Persian Empire. Okay, so Xerxes' efforts to defeat Greece from becoming a major superpower, they fall, and Alexander the Great here takes over. He's the mighty king here. He would eventually bring the downfall after a few years of the Persian Empire, and he would conquer the known world in as little as five simple years. Now, in other imagery, if you can think back, and if it doesn't hurt your head, in Daniel chapter 7, um, the kingdom of Greece is represented by a leopard with wings on its back. And that's representative of how fast Alexander the Great conquered the known world. You've got a leopard who's a really fast animal, and he put wings on its back. He's even faster. Um, But at the peak of Alexander's power, we're told that he dies prematurely of a fever in his capital city uh, at that time, which was in Babylon. And the text notes that his kingdom will be broken up in direction of the four winds meaning that it's going to be divided fourfold. However, we're also told that none of those divisions were given to his family. Um, Hercules and Alexander's two sons were both murdered uh, when they were young, as was Alexander's uncle. And chapter 8 talked about that, and we didn't get a chance to cover chapter 8. But we know that his kingdom was divided up amongst his four generals. So we talk about the four winds of the earth, the four directions, the four generals, because they ruled in the four different parts excuse me, parts of his empire, the north, east, west, and south. So that's why it's saying that. But only two of these men, two of those generals, start dynasties that actually become significant enough for Daniel to include in Daniel chapter 11 and for him to mention. And these two dynasties come in the forms of two of them here, names the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. It's a silent P. So the Seleucids and the Ptolemies verses 5 through 7. 
Now, if you remember back even further in your imagery, all the way back to the metal image, the kingdom of Greece was considered the belly and thighs of bronze, okay? So the belly is representative of Alexander and his kingdom gets split into two dynasties or two lines, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. That's how that imagery all ties in and ties together. So the statue that we talked about, the single stomach, it moves to, because we all have single stomachs, right? We're not cows, we all have single stomachs. And it moves to two thighs, it shows how the Grecian Empire moves from one leader to two dynasties. So much of the information in chapter 11 in the book of Daniel is, is around what the text calls the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And these are just reference to the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, okay? Uh, just reference to the direction that they are. One is north, one is south, okay? And it's all in direction to Daniel and God's people because that's the, uh, that's the main perspective of the text. Remember, Daniel says, what's going to happen to my people and my nation? So for, for the text of Daniel, the center of the universe, so to speak, is the land of Israel. So to the north is one and to the south is the other. So the north and south are directions related to, to, to the Jewish people. So the nation to the south was mainly centered um, in the, air, in the area of, uh, of Egypt, south is Egypt, and uh, north is Syria, or the Seleucids. So Israel here, the land becomes, uh, the, the, the land is situated here between these two major power players. And within this section, and we're not going to go through this entire section, with this section of verses 5 down through verse 20, 15, 16 verses, there are so many prophecies here related to the future kingdom of Greece. If you got into some details and opened up your history books, you could find and see how these prophecies amazingly are fulfilled one after the next after the next. And it's going back and forth between the north and the south. Um, and again, when I say the kingdom of Greece, I am referring to the future in Daniel's day, not our day, because that's already past. Okay? So when Daniel receives these prophecies in the text, they're 200 years from being fulfilled. For us, we look back and they've already been fulfilled. Um, so think of it like this. If you ever study the kings, like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, and you know that after Solomon decided, or excuse me, after Rehoboam, Solomon's son, decided that it was better to put more taxes on the people, uh, he listened to the advice of the younger ones instead of the advice of the older ones, Solomon's older advisors. Um, the kingdom was split. I think it's funny that the kingdom was split because of the issue of taxes. Um, that's a whole other story. But the kingdom gets split, and you've got, what, the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes. And as you read through those passages, the king in the north does this. The king in the south does this. The king in the north does this. The king in the south does this. Very, very similar to what's going on here as far as helping you to understand that during this time, there's two different dynasties trying to rule the world stage. Just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, for sake of time, and maybe boredom to others, we're not going to skip through this section. We're going to skip through this section of 15 verses. And I want you to drop down to verse 21 of chapter 11. Because verse 21 is where we meet the major player, the major ruler, uh, as far as the text of Daniel is concerned. He's considered the most significant in Daniel. He's the most anti-Semitic, most punishing, 
uh, a rule, most punishing ruler, one who despises the Jewish people, persecutes them in such a ruthless manner. And his name is Antiochus, and uh, Antiochus the Fourth, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and the way in which he persecutes the Jewish people during their time under Greek rule really is going to become insignificant compared to how the Antichrist will persecute the Jewish people during the tribulation period, a subject that we'll get to. But I wanted you to look at this verse here, chapter 11, verse 21. And in his place shall rise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So these verses here, verses 21 through 35, talk about Antiochus, a great persecutor of the Jewish people. The text labels him as a vile person because of what he's going to do to the nation of Israel, become one of the greatest threats to Jewish worship. Antiochus referred to himself as Epiphanes, which means manifest one or illustrious one. Um, and he, Antiochus takes the throne even though it rightfully belonged to someone else and he was able to persuade the leaders to be able to follow him um, as the rightful heir because the one who was the rightful heir was being held hostage. And in this way, through intrigue, he kind of takes and seizes the throne. He secures for himself this throne. But Antiochus always had an agenda. Okay, verses 23 and 24 tell us that. It says, And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people, he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoils, the riches. He shall devise plans against the strongholds, again, but only for a time. So one of the strategies that Antiochus would often implement is that he would simply um, have an alliance with a nation that he thought would be useful to him. And he would have some kind of political alliance or friendship. But then he would maneuver himself in that alliance to the advantageous position until he could catch them by surprise. See, Antiochus always wanted to conquer and to have rule over all the kingdoms, both the kingdoms. Just like the Antichrist always wants to rule all the kingdoms on his own by himself. He doesn't want to share his ruling with anybody else. So when Antiochus seizes the throne under the rule of the Seleucids, he has this idea that he just wants to bring the two nations together, all under him, of course, so he could lead them. His intent was to conquer Egypt and unite both kingdoms. And the seriousness of his plan is shown by the coins that were actually minted during that time. Normally the head uh, symbol of a nation will be on one side and the god Zeus will be on the other side. But in this, in this case, Antiochus puts himself in the place of the god in place of Zeus. So manifest one, uh, some people say that also means God manifest like he thought he was. Uh, he wanted to be worshiped as a God. He wanted to be considered deity, kind of what the Antichrist does in the book of Revelation as well. Now as he continues to enlarge his power base, again, I'm just kind of surveying through here. He's grown strong enough to make his move against the south because Egypt is the place that has all the riches. That's a place that has a lot of power, a lot of wealth. If he can gain all of those things, then he can continue to grow his power base and become more and more powerful. So he goes down there, we're told, in about 170 B.C., but 
his plan to overtake Egypt doesn't pan out. Defeated, he returns back home north into Syria. And of course, on the way home, he has to pass through the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. Uh, And to get there, he comes up on an insurrection taking place. And there was a rumor that Antiochus had died in battle. And so some of the Jewish leadership wanted to take control of their country. And a man named Jason steps forward and tries to take control of Israel. But Antiochus, being the persecutor of God's people that he is, he doesn't stand for it. And he puts down the rebellion within three days, killing more than 80,000 men, women, and children. Okay, in just three days. Antiochus puts down a minor coup with a major conflict that was unnecessary and was completely ruthless. Okay. He is not a guy that you want to mess with. And he is a picture, and we're going to talk about this again, of what it's going to be like as another persecutor of God's people comes, the Antichrist, in the book of Revelation. Less than one year later, 169 B.C., Antiochus tries again. Let's go back to Egypt again, okay? I've got more men. I've got (laughs) more money. Let's go back. And this time he's completely unsuccessful. I mean, just completely unsuccessful. And the cause of Antiochus' failure was that he encountered opposition from the ships of Cyprus. It says in verse 30. Now, this refers to the Roman fleet. Okay, So now enters the picture of the beginning of the fourth kingdom, the Roman fleet, who had come to Alexandria in Egypt at the request of one of the Ptolemies. And the story goes, as Antiochus' army was, mo- army was moving into position to besiege the city of Alexandria in Egypt, the Roman commander Gaius meets Antiochus, and he meets him four miles outside the city of Alexandria. And the story goes that Gaius and and, uh, Antiochus meet, and Gaius takes a stick, and he draws a circle in the sand all the way around Antiochus. And Antiochus is in the middle of the circle, okay? So he draws a circle in the sand all the way around. Gaius had gives to Antiochus papers, okay? A note, basically a letter crafted from the Roman Senate ordering him to leave Egypt or he was going to face war with Rome, okay? So Egypt is now in league with Rome. Rome's coming to aid Egypt. Gaius draws a circle around Antiochus. Think about this. Think about the picture. This would make a good movie. Draws a circle around Antiochus in the middle of the circle. And Gaius says, you have to make your decision whether you will accept or reject the letter before you leave that circle. So he's got to make a choice. And so this Syrian king, Antiochus, stood humiliated in silence and for a brief moment before he finally accepted the terms of the Roman Senate. And so Antiochus withdrew in utter, utter humiliation and retreated back to his homeland. But once again, on his way back to his homeland, he had to go through Israel. He had to go through Palestine. So guess who took the brunt of his frustration? The Jewish people endured a severe persecution from Antiochus because of something they had really nothing at all to do with. Verse 31 of chapter 11 says, And the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifice, 
and place there the abomination that causes desolation. What happens, according to history, is that Antiochus ordered one of his generals and 22,000 soldiers into Jerusalem on what he claimed to be a peaceful mission. And once inside the city, they attacked the Jews, and they attacked them on the Sabbath day, a day where the Jews felt reluctant to defend themselves. And the objective seemed to be to wipe out, eradicate Judaism, and to force all the Jews to start following the Roman religion. Sounds like the book of Esther, doesn't it? One day, eradicate all the people. And he forbids the Jewish people to follow the Mosaic law. He does away with their daily sacrifices, their festivals. He even burns copies of the law in public. And as a culminating measure, Antiochus put an image of Zeus, his Greek god, in the temple and set up an altar to Zeus on top of the altar of burnt offerings. Then he proceeded to sacrifice a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar that was supposed to be clean for offerings and sacrifices. This happened on December 18th, 168 B.C. And the Jews referred to this act in the text here, the abomination that caused desolation. It polluted their altar now it made sacrifices to God impossible. You can't, you can't sacrifice now. And Tagus, again, his actions here are a preview of similar atrocities that are yet to be fulfilled through the Antichrist in the future, who's also going to do the same thing. He's going to set himself up as a god in the temple and want all the world to worship him. Well, the Jews that remain true to their god begin a movement against Antiochus, and that movement is called the Maccabean Revolt. And this revolt was begun by uh, a priest named Matthias. And Matthias had three sons, and their sons' names were Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. Judas was nicknamed the Hammer. He was the one who kills one of Antiochus' generals. And, and later on, he and his brothers achieved great victories. And as a, result, as a result of this revolt, the Jewish people actually stood up and revolted against Antiochus, that the temple was taken back. And it was rededicated to God on December 14th, 164 B.C. And every year the Jewish people celebrate this occasion with the festival they call Hanukkah. And that's where the origination of Hanukkah comes because they were able to take it back. So Antiochus here is, is an evil ruler, <laughs> ruthless bent on persecuting the Jewish people. He, he really wasn't, it almost seems like, pointedly after the Jewish people, but it seems like every time that he came back from battle, every time he came back with his tail between his legs, defeated, he needs to take it out on the Jewish people. The Jewish people were always there for him to take it out on. But our other character in the text here, the Antichrist, he's going to purposely go after the Jewish people. He's going to set his sights on them because they are God's chosen people. These are the ones that he wants to go after because of by nature of who they are. At this point in the text, there's a change in focus. So no longer is Antiochus the king here, becomes someone other than Antiochus. As some scholars will say, the text continues to speak about Antiochus in verses 36 to 45. But even secular history informs us, and you can go to the next slide, even secular history informs us that what happens in verses 36 to 45 never happened to Antiochus. It never does. So that means the information in verses 36 to 45 must be applied to someone other than Antiochus. In fact, beginning in verse 36, 
Um, it signals a new person to be in view here. I'm going to read verse 36 here in chapter 11. It says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. By the way, if you go back to verse 35, that end verse, verse 35 says that some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, to make them white until the time of the end, of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. By the way, that's a signal in the text that's saying, okay, we're done with Antiochus, and now we're going to move to some end times or end events as relates to the Antichrist that we'll come into contact with here. But in verse 36, the king signals a new person to be in view, okay? The previous text calls Antiochus beginning to be a vile person, and then he's referred on and off as he, as he, as he, as he, but never as king, okay? So what that means is now we're not going to jump forward to another dictator, another persecutor of God's people that will come in the future, and we know him as the Antichrist. And what Antiochus did to the Jewish people is going to be insignificant. I just read you some of the things, just a couple of the things that Antiochus did to the Jewish people. It was a lot worse than what I just portrayed. But what Antiochus did to the Jewish people will be insignificant compared to the treatment that the Jewish people will receive from the Antichrist during the tribulation period. So from chapter 11, verse 36, through chapter 12, verse 3, these are prophecies that await fulfillment, future fulfillment. So we're going to fast forward to the days of the Antichrist during the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. And now we're going to connect both of them, okay? So it's making a, making a comparison, okay? And sometimes prophecy jumps. Um, uh, several sections of Scripture show us that, and we can go back and look at that. But I want you to understand that they're also making a comparison here. Just like Antiochus persecuted God's people under Grecian rule, so also what's going to happen in the fourth kingdom, all right? And the fourth kingdom is what we're in right now and is what the Antichrist is a part of. So we're going to fast forward. We're moving from a historical figure in the past named Antiochus. And now we'll move to a future world dictator that will appear on the world stage during the tribulation. And his name, again, you know him well, his name is the Antichrist. So look at what it says here. Let's read these couple of verses, verses 36 to 39. And I divided this up a little bit so you could understand what the text is talking about. This material here, chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, is probably some of the more contested areas in Daniel of his prophecy as it relates to the Antichrist. It's not as clear. Uh, it's some of the details. Sometimes I wish the details to be clear, but we have a lot more history and information than Daniel ever did, so I'm thankful for that. Um, but sometimes uh, it gets a little fuzzy. But look at verse 36. He says, Then the king shall do according to his own will, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall neither regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in, the place, in their place he shall honor a god of fortress and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So let's talk about a few of these verses here. 
the Antichrist is religious beliefs. So you realize the Antichrist has religious beliefs in this sense. The depiction here that we're given in this section concerns his philosophies, his practices, rather than his military exploits or the things that we know he'll do. You know, we know in the book of Revelation, a lot of, we know that the Antichrist is going to come and try to, try to get rid of the Jewish people. He's going to be the major player, the conflict, the battle. We always think about the battle, the military battle, the battle of Armageddon, things like that. But he has some religious things here that are kind of significant, and Daniel highlights that. This is the phrase, the king shall do according to his own will. It's found several times throughout the book of Daniel. Um, even from Nebuchadnezzar and from some of the other kings, it suggests a prideful heart, okay? A prideful man. He's a dictator. He wants the whole world to worship him. That's the epitome of pride. It's what Satan wanted. Uh, the passage seems to indicate that the Antichrist, it's possible that he could be an atheist, uh, that he'll use religion to gain his position of power. As noted in other passages, specifically in Revelation 13, and if there's a scripture that you'd write down to mesh with these passage, with this passage of chapter 11, verse 36 to 45, it would be Revelation 13. That would be the one that meshes here. As noted in other scripture passages in Revelation 13, he will exalt himself as a god and demand the worship of the world. Um, the text notes that he speaks blasphemous things. And that word blasphemous is a translation of a Hebrew word with some different meanings. It can mean wonderful things, unheard of things, surpassing things, extraordinary things. Um, the King James and New King James translators use blasphemous to depict the wicked character. And that's true. And I, and I, and I agree with that. Um, but the other meanings, they're a little more closer to the original wording. It kind of depicts the king's shrewdness and cleverness and how the world will be awestruck be mesmerized, almost spellbound by him. Revelation 13, 3 says, all the world will marvel and will follow the beast. So it's this charisma, this, this tendency just to want to follow him because of what he is able to do. I mean, you think about the things that we understand about the Antichrist and what he's actually able to do. He's actually able to get peace in the Middle East, able to restore some of these things. He's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize, and he's going to win a lot of awards, and the world is just going to flock to him because he's going to seem to have all the answers. The text continues telling us he will prosper for a period of time. Revelation 13, again, verse 5, tells us that he was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years. But for Daniel, the timetable here in the text is until the wrath is complete. And the wrath in view here is God's wrath that will be poured out on the Antichrist, the unbelieving world. And again, I take comfort in knowing the Antichrist's activities in the tribulation period are permitted by God to accomplish his purposes. Remember that Daniel was told 70 weeks, remember back our 70 weeks, 70 weeks are determined upon your city and upon your people. The 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is the tribulation week. That's designed for the nation of Israel alone. Uh, not for us. The church is going to be gone. Uh, verse 37, everybody likes, all the scholars like to talk about this verse. It says, He shall receive re uh, regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Um, and uh, everybody likes to say that the Antichrist will probably be a homosexual. Um, I don't think he'll be a homosexual. Um, verse 37 um, informs the Antichrist will reject whatever form of religions that his forefathers practiced. So if the Antichrist arises from ancient Rome, 
which we know he will, that Roman kingdom, that fourth kingdom, then it's possible that his family religion could be a form of Christianity. It's possible. Other scholars have noted the phrase, the God of his fathers, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and they believe the Antichrist might be an apostate Jew, so that's another thought. But the word for God here is Elohim. It's a more gentle term for God. And we've already known the Antichrist comes from this fourth kingdom, so it's in all likelihood um, that this person will not be a Jewish person. I guess he could be a Jewish Roman. Um, but the description of him in this verse is not clear. We can't be dogmatic, but trust me, a lot of scholars, a lot of Bible study students offer all those opinions as to the nature of where the Antichrist is going to come from, what tribe he's going to arise from, how he's going to come to the stage, things like that. We're also told that he will not have a desire for women, but the phrase rightly means desire by women. And I don't think that it's the fact that he's going to be ugly, <laughs> nor will he be a homosexual. I think it means it's meant to highlight his, his prideful nature, okay? Notice that the text says, for he shall exalt himself above them all. So those things that were just mentioned in verse uh, 37, if you look back at verse 37, he shall regard, regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God for, or the purpose that he doesn't do any of this, shall be to exalt himself above them all. It's meant to highlight his prideful nature. The text is telling us though he will be so in love with himself that he won't care about religion or women, the two things that have, men have desired since the dawn of time. Okay? So he's, not, he's going to be so in love with himself that he's going to have no time to worship any other god than himself. He is going to be the, the supreme humanist, you might say. He is going to be his own god. And in contrast to this, verse 38 tells us what he will desire. He will desire the god of fortress. Well, what is the god of fortress? Well, that refers to military power, military might. And the only thing that this man will regard um, as a god is war. War will be his god. He will serve war. It's war that will get him worship from the world. As he conquers the world and as he forces the world to worship him, that's the only god that he's going to serve, the god of war. Um, his ancestors didn't worship the god of military power, but the Antichrist will. In fact, even the text goes on to tell us that he will honor this god of fortress by spending lots of money to increase the size and strength of his army. And one author Apley said it this way, for religion he will substitute war, and war he will support with everything that he has. Exactly, because war will get him what he wants. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortress with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. He shall cause him to rule over many and divide the land for gain. That foreign god in that verse referred to may be the god of military might mentioned earlier in verse 38, could also be some other foreign god that the Antichrist uses for his own ends. But I think it's probably more likely that this foreign god will be Satan himself. And Revelation 13, 2 says, the dragon, a reference to Satan, gave him, the beast, his power, his throne, and his great authority. Okay? So like Antiochus before him, the Antichrist will reward those who are loyal to him with honor, positions of authority, in his kingdom, calls them to rule over many people, allotting them territories, divide the land for gain. The price for these rewards is allegiance to the Antichrist and his government. So the first three and a half years of that tribulation period are, are kind of relatively peaceful as a treaty with Israel has been signed. 
worship is reestablished. Israel seems to be reestablishing her position as a power in the world once again. The Antichrist has his place on the world stage along with the ten-nation confederacy, and they're sharing power together. But it's in the middle of the tribulation, the peace treaty is broken, and the Antichrist no longer wants to be part of the ten confederations, ten nations. He wants to rule the world himself. He breaks the treaty and begins to go after world domination. Because again, he wants to be worshipped. He wants the God to be worshipped. He wants all power. He wants everything. And so those last five verses, verses 40 to 45, talk about how he'll do that, how he will conquer the world, or he will try to conquer the world. At the time of the end, verse 40, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall enter the glorious land, the land of Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries of the land of Egypt, and he shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Now the final acts here, kind of uh, as the Antichrist starts his quest to conquer the world, just like in the book of Revelation, you know, it's not strictly chronological. Sometimes it is. More, Revelation is more chronological than probably a lot of other uh, prophecy books. But sometimes it's hard to find some of the details here. We know the Antichrist and the Ten Nation Confederacy somehow share the world stage together during part of the tribulation. But that alliance doesn't last. Again, the Antichrist engages in the power struggle. And maybe the rival power here in the text is those Ten Nations. He tries to overcome them. And appears he'll be on the verge of a major victory, we're told in the text. But in this major victory, again, the power struggle affects God's people. The beautiful land here is a reference to the land of Israel. And um, it says, news, verse 44, from the east and the south shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Again, that's in Israel. He shall come to his end and no one will help him. So it seems like in his quest here to conquer, his quest to throw off this ten-nation confederacy and take world domination, something alarms him to change his direction. Maybe a rebellion from the nations that he conquered. Not told exactly, but we're told that he'll be caused to move into the Holy Land to pitch his tent there. Maybe make that his forward operating base as it begins to engage in a war on two different fronts. And it's in this battle the Antichrist is mortally wounded. It says he dies. He comes to his end and no one will help him. But Revelation tells us that he will be resurrected. Revelation chapter 13. Again, Revelation 13 is your key to this passage. And the false prophet will be the one who helps perform the resurrection, but the real power behind it, the real power behind the deception is Satan. And he's referred to as the dragon in Revelation chapter 13. Now that's a lot. Understand that in the tribulation period, if I can just highlight, and, and we, our time is gone, so I have to finish, but if I can just highlight the fact that you have to think of the Antichrist is, is we often wonder as you, as you read through Revelation, the tribulation, and you think, how in the world would the world want to follow him. 
knowing all that we know of now today, why would we want to follow him? You know, all the skepticism that we have of world leaders today, why would we follow him? And there's a, a variety of reasons. But the epitome is in, it's encapsulated in his name. He is the Antichrist, okay? So he's going to do everything to make himself look like the Christ, okay? So being resurrected again from a mortal wound, well, Jesus rose again from the grave, okay? He's going to do everything he can to look like the long-awaited Messiah because he wants to fool the Jewish people because he wants to fool the world, really, into worshiping him. He wants all the worship, so he's going to do whatever it takes, use whatever religion, whatever group he needs to, to make the world worship him. That's his end goal, and that's why he's going to be so deceptive. And that's why even in the book of uh, Revelation, it's giving us a clue here. In Revelation chapter 13, at the very end, when it talks about how he's resurrected, it says, but here is wisdom. In Revelation 13, the number of the beast is 666, okay? And that's not a number to be afraid of because man was created on day six. So what Revelation is trying to tell us is that he's not God. He's man. He's man. He's man. Three times John is trying to tell us. He's man. He's man. He's man. He's not God. He's going to try to be God. He's going to act like God. He's going to look like God. He's going to do whatever he can. And we all hate that number, don't we? 666. We go through the McDonald's drive-thru and we get 666. If you order something, you're like, put something else on my order. We don't want to be associated with it. I'm like, no, keep it. I like 666. It reminds me that the Antichrist in tribulation that's going to come, he's man, he's man, he's man, because everybody else is going to be fooled into thinking he's God, he's God, he's God, but he's not. And John is telling us that, like when your mom tells you, calls your name three times, you know you're in trouble. Or maybe she uses all three of your names, you know, first, middle, and last. You know you're in trouble. So again, he's going to do everything he can to get the world to worship him. And of course, when he has the false prophet and Satan or the dragon behind him and the deception that comes and, and the church is gone, our influence is gone, it's going to be easy for the world to worship him. And he's going to persecute the Jewish people uh, to, to no extent. And now the second half of the tribulation we'll talk a little bit more about as Daniel references that briefly in Daniel chapter 12 Something we'll look at next week as we kind of finish out. But remember that phrase we've been working with, trust God despite the details. And the fact of the matter and the fact that ought to give us comfort every single day is that God is still in complete control of all things. No matter what happens in our world, whether it's earthly or whether it's heavenly. And during the days of the tribulation when the Antichrist is given freedom to persecute God's people, he's still on a leash God's still in control. When the time has run its course, Scripture tells us the Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire. His time is finished. should remind us that we have an allotment of certain days that only God knows. And when it's our time to go, we go. Sometimes we think that people may have left this earth way too early. But that's our perspective, and we don't have the big picture or sometimes even all the details. That's why it's important for us to trust God despite the details. And chapter 11 has a lot of details, and some of them I'm more sure of than others. But regardless of my uncertainty, I'm going to trust God's plan and continue to get the message out of salvation to a lost and dying world. And by the way, you realize in the book of Revelation, God still is trying to reach the world. He's still trying to reach the world through those 144,000 witnesses. So even in the darkest hour in the tribulation period, God is still trying, trying to save people or offering them salvation. And we have a job today 
to do the same thing. So next week we'll finish up with chapter 12 and I'll probably go back a little bit into chapter 11 and bring us into chapter 12 and we'll be finished.